Hello, and welcome to ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm the resident scholar of the ABI for spring 2016 and the Graham Keenan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So listeners to this podcast know that Congress sometimes sees a need to enact bankruptcy laws or elements of a bankruptcy law that are applicable to debts that have already been incurred. Some of that discussion is going on right now regarding the financial crisis in Puerto Rico. Uh, We have a great guest to talk with us about some of the constitutional issues that sometimes get raised here, Professor Charles Tabb of the University of Illinois. Professor Tabb is the Mildred Van Voorhis Jones Chair in Law and also a former ABI scholar in residence. He's long taken a historical approach to bankruptcy law and its constitutional elements, so really is a perfect guest for us today. And he's recently published an article that's right on point for some of the questions that are being raised about the Puerto Rico legislation. Um, The article's called The Bankruptcy Clause, the Fifth Amendment, and the Limited Rights of Secured Creditors in Bankruptcy, which he presented and published as part of the ABI Chapter 11 Commission's uh, conference proceedings and ultimately published in the Illinois Law Review. So welcome, Professor Tabb. Thank you, Melissa. It's a delight to, uh, to have a chance to speak with you today. So let's go back to the background, at least, of your article. So you did not have Puerto Rico in mind when you wrote this article. What prompted you to write it? I wrote it, of course, uh, as part – I embarked on it as part of the uh, symposium. Uh, The uh, University of Illinois and the ABI, with their Chapter 11 study, partnered uh, to put on the uh, uh, symposium, which you also, of course, were a, a valuable part of. And I started to explore the question of what rights secured creditors had. It, the concern I had that, that I was uh, reacting to, which uh, actually a number of people, including you, Ted Janger, and some others, uh, dealt with uh, in different ways in, in the papers, uh, there's a concern that uh, we were looking at that secured creditors were uh, always getting the any sort of incremental value, the uh, uh, going concern surplus or whatever. And and I was concerned about that and so assumed that there was, in fact, sort of this bedrock floor of constitutional entitlement below which secured creditors couldn't be taken. There's, uh, we'll probably discuss sort of an iconic statement uh, that Justice Douglas had made in the case close to 80 years ago now, and I, like most people, had assumed, uh, sort of without uh, more, that that the received wisdom that there was, in fact, such a constitutional entitlement. So really, just as as part of the background of starting to try and work through what might might not be able to be done uh, as policy matter to deal with secured claims in Chapter 11 reorganizations, I started looking into that assumption and discovered (laughs) that, in fact, it perhaps is a situation, you know, the proverbial, the emperor has no clothes, that, wait a minute, that's, in fact, quite dubious. (laughs) The the only basis for it uh, was... Uh, really, a 1935 decision, uh, uh, the, uh, the Radford case, which we'll, we'll probably talk about some more, uh, in which, for the first time, sort of out of the blue, the Supreme Court invoked 
in very oblique language, takings is a limitation on what can be done to secured creditors in bankruptcy. Um, and following that, there were some cases, one of which made this uh, statement about the entitlement of secured creditors. But I discovered upon looking more closely at the historical record and the evolution of the case law, and then also really trying to look at first assumptions in terms of the constitutional structure, that the received wisdom, which is that secured creditors have a constitutional right to the value of their collateral, uh, which is protected by the takings clause, is simply wrong, that that is not, in fact, the best view. Now, the Supreme Court, in a case 34 years ago, uh, didn't squarely hold that. They, they recited favorably the uh, Radford case, and we'll, we'll talk about this historical development. Um, but, but I think that's wrong, and that the, the better view is that, in fact, takings uh, is not a limitation on what can be done pursuant to uh, the bankruptcy clause with regard to the rights of secured creditors in bankruptcy. Uh, so as often happens, you and I both know this uh, in uh, in research, you, you start just looking into something, just assuming this will just sort of set the stage for your argument, and you discover that the whole stage is different than you thought. Uh, and so that's sort of where, where it went. Well, I do completely agree with you that uh, when you go into a question with a somewhat open mind or not expecting to see something, you never know where it will take you, and sometimes it's the most uh, the most relevant directions that you can go. So there are sort of two levels to your project. Uh, there's the one that is maybe is more likely to be contested about the limits on the bankruptcy clause of, of takings. and But then there's a background that I also think is very relevant to these Puerto Rico discussions of that that takings is less relevant to a lot of questions in bankruptcy than people might think. So could you just give us an elevator pitch on sort of how takings and bankruptcy intersect sort of generally that pretty much everyone agrees on and then where you are pushing the envelope a little bit more? Absolutely. No, that, that's, that's fair. The the essentially uncontested, everyone agrees on it, aspect is that essentially anything can be done to secured creditors in terms of staying them, delaying them, preventing them from foreclosing. They cannot exercise their state law remedies, uh, their rights of acceleration, et cetera, et cetera. Really, the only thing under the received wisdom, which the pushing the envelope part of my uh, thesis said was wrong, is the necessary entitlement to the uh, protection of the value of the collateral. But it's beyond contest at this point, uh, not with the pushing the envelope, but under accepted uh, doctrine, that secured creditors can be delayed, can be delayed extensively uh, in, uh, by a bankruptcy case without there being uh, a takings problem. Indeed, Melissa, in the relevant cases where this has been most clearly um, noted, 
takings isn't even discussed. It's not even on the table uh, as a possible problem. Uh, and I mean, I can give you some of the historical background of that, but but that's really the notable thing. Essentially, all if you look at, at what a secured creditor has, right? They have a bundle of rights. I mean, there are a number of different entitlements they have pursuant to their contract outside of bankruptcy um, with the uh, with their debtor in terms of declaring defaults, accelerating the debt, you know, going forward with foreclosure, and so forth. There's a whole grouping of rights. They have essentially the Supreme Court has at this point in a series of cases clearly held that all of those rights can be taken away except possibly uh, this right to eventually in some way, shape, or form to get paid the liquidation value of their collateral. Everything else can be taken away. And as I said, they don't really even raise takings as an issue with regard to that. So let's break this down a little bit more. Now, you've been focusing on the rights of secured creditors, and let's just be clear about why you're doing that as opposed to creditors who do not have a security interest, do not have collateral. What's the difference for takings purposes? Right. What I'm, this is, the the point I'm making there is again uh, taking away my envelope pushing point and accepting as true, even though I think it's false, but accepting as true the fundamental statement uh, that the Supreme Court made in a 1935 decision, the uh, Louisville Joint Stock Land Bank uh, versus Radford case, known everybody as the Radford case, an old Brandeis decision, uh, which was sort of resurrected and ratified in the 1982 decision, Security Industrial Bank, in which the court said, basically, there's a difference between the property right held by a secured creditor and the rights held by simple contract claimants. And that the former, the secured creditor, their right in their specific tangible rights in identifiable items of collateral, that that's a property right. The court said, I disagree with them, the court said, which is entitled to protections under the takings clause. Whereas they said for creditors lacking that uh, sort of tangible collateral property right interest, mere contract creditors, no takings issue in bankruptcy whatsoever. Now, the thrust of my article is, and what we'll talk about some I know is, sort of my thesis is that that distinction, the dichotomy, the strict dichotomy between property claimants of secured credit and being protected undertakings, mere contract claims not being protected is is a house of cards. I mean, if you look at it closely and push it at all, it completely collapses. But the reason I'm, I'm raising that is the most that can be said under accepted doctrine is that a secured creditor, unlike anyone else, that a secured creditor has a property right in their lien, in the collateral subject to their lien, that's 
entitled to Fifth Amendment takings protection, and nobody else has such an entitlement. So to the extent bondholders are threatening regulatory takings actions due to a financial crisis, there is no, they do not have current law on their side, is what you're saying? They do not. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because... If they don't have collateral, let me just be clear, if they don't have collateral. Exactly. I mean, the interesting point is, at some level, they're right. And, and this is really part of my thesis, that this supposedly binary distinction dichotomy that has been noted first in Radford, then reaffirmed in security industrial bank cases, this idea that there's this uh, clear and immutable distinction and perceivable and, and graspable distinction between secured claimant liens and mere contract claimants is a canard. Uh, indeed, part of my thesis where I'm pushing the envelope is to say that contract claims indeed do constitute a form of property which under the prevailing jurisprudence is entitled to some takings protection with regard to regulatory takings and the like as a general matter. However, the, and, and so you could say, well, everybody is entitled to takings protection, but the problem that they would run into then is one thing that is indisputably accepted, and Supreme Court has never held or even intimated otherwise, is that mere contract claimants who have who do, who cannot say that there is my collateral, I have a lien interest in this specific property. Everyone else, the bankruptcy clause wins, and this is where I, the point about the fundamental problem is one not only of history, which we'll talk about, but of constitutional structure. Supreme Court in a number of cases um, has made the fundamental point, one, which we'll again perhaps talk about some more, the, the very important 1935 Rock Island case, um, essentially says that pursuant to the bankruptcy clause, the Article I power of the Congress, that it's essential under the bankruptcy clause, it's the very nature of a bankruptcy law to interfere with, to compromise, uh, to modify contractual claims. Stated otherwise, if you actually had a situation where the takings clause for contract claimants limited the bankruptcy power, you would essentially have, I could use a pun, a bankrupt bankruptcy power. I mean, there, there would be no there there, because that's what bankruptcy laws do, is they modify claim. Including those that already exist at the date of enactment. Absolutely. And that's the whole point. The, the fundamental thing the bankruptcy clause does, which uh, is unlike the potential limitations just under the uh, contracts clause, but for the bankruptcy clause, there would be a substantial problem uh, with modifying with regard to retroactive uh, legislation, with, with regard to pre-existing claims. This, indeed, is on the historical basis throughout the substantial part of the 19th century in which the 
there was no federal bankruptcy law in effect, but many states had bankruptcy laws. But states didn't enjoy, of course, the Article I bankruptcy power. States tried to compromise claims uh, and act in a bankruptcy-like fashion. And the Supreme Court said, well, since you don't have the bankruptcy clause, you're limited by the uh, you know, prohibition against the impairment of the obligation of contracts, and so you can't do that. Absolutely clear, though, that the federal Congress passing a bankruptcy law under the auspices of the bankruptcy clause trumps contracts, and there's zero takings problem. Indeed, in the case law uh, that's gone to the Supreme Court, they've never even raised takings as a question uh, in these issues. The only uh, discussion that comes up with regard to contracts claims uh, is the possibility of a due process uh, limitation. Of course, as an economic regulation, the bar is so low for um, that. I mean, it simply can't be arbitrary or so you know grossly unreasonable as to be incompatible with fundamental law, which clearly would not be the case. I mean, you can't just say, well, we're doing this just because we want to take your claim away because we don't like you. I mean, that's clearly not what's going on here. I mean, Puerto Rico's in an extreme crisis. So any sort of law would be there would be a, a clearly, fairly compelling governmental interest on why they're doing it. Uh, and so it would, without any question, uh, pass a due process uh, hurdle. And it would clearly also, the second component, Melissa, it would be covered by the bankruptcy power. Uh, the court has made clear that the scope of the power under the bankruptcy clause is quite broad. Really, anything, any sort of law that affects the relations between a debtor who's having trouble paying its debts and its creditors that deals with the distribution of the debtor's property and the potential discharge of claims qualifies. In other words, Congress has the Article I power to do that. So no collateral, no hope under a takings. Uh, that's it. There might be a regulatory taking, but the bankruptcy clause trumps it. So, okay, so we've just separated claims with collateral and claims without collateral. Now, let's focus on claims with collateral. A big issue here has been the automatic stay or, it, it, again, in the some of the legislation that's pending or being considered, there's both an automatic stay in the part that looks, they don't want to call it bankruptcy, but it has all the elements of bankruptcy. There is also a moratorium that's being considered that might be imposed without the other pieces of a bankruptcy regime. So let's stay focused on this, these stay elements. You, you've alluded to this before, but let's hit it squarely. So to the extent there's a takings challenge to the automatic stay within a bankruptcy regime or standing alone, what would, under prevailing jurisprudence, what would the law have to do to ensure that it could survive that challenge? It, it, it simply has to pass due process hurdle. I mean, it uh, has to be a you know, reasonable economic regulation. There is no takings problem. Supreme Court has made this abundantly clear. There have been a number of cases. Uh, again, the, the most notable perhaps uh, being the 1935 Rock Island case 
in which the major complaint uh, of the uh, secured parties in that case was that they had been damaged by the stay. Uh, in that case, when the stay went into effect, this was was testing uh, one of the new uh, New Deal uh, uh, reg, uh, reorganization laws that had been passed. In that case, when the case was filed and the legisl and the uh, statutory stay went into effect, the injunction was entered uh, by the court pursuant to the uh, legislative authorization. At that point in time, in that case, the secured parties were oversecured. Uh, they had excess collateral in the, the current valuation over and above the amount of their claim. Stated otherwise, but for this law, they would have been able to get paid in full outside of bankruptcy. While the case was pending, and while this case was winding its way up to the Supreme Court uh, with the plummeting values of uh, property in the mid-1930s, they, they went from being oversecured to being seriously underwater. Uh, they had lost, by the time they filed their brief with the court, uh, like 40% of their value. And they complained that, interestingly, and they had some of the most uh, famous appellate advocates of the last century arguing their case. There was a lot of money involved. They didn't even raise takings. They challenged it. They said this was a due process violation, that they had had their right to foreclose when they wanted to foreclose, which was a right they had under their documents, under state law, uh, that that had been a deprivation of due process. It was an unreasonable measure. So, with regard to that, the Supreme Court just was dismissive of it. So it's, it's reasonable regulation. It affects only the remedy. That's fine. Not a problem. And that was it. Uh, this has been reaffirmed in a sense, even in a very famous case under the current bankruptcy code, the uh, 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 Timbers case, uh, in which the argument that the secured creditors made was that they were not being adequately protected by being delayed in foreclosing because of the automatic stay. What they were claiming they were entitled to, and they were claiming this under the statute uh, more directly, obliquely under the Constitution, and because that was sort of mentioned in passing in the legislative history, but the real argument was that the, uh, the statutory adequate protection mandate required that they be compensated for the delay in foreclosing. So in that case, the uh, facts were uh, that the uh, real property at the time of the filing was worth about $4 million, we'll say. Okay, during the case, the collateral value remained constant, but their argument was, well, if we can't foreclose for a couple years while this is in bankruptcy, we have indisputably lost money. That is, $4 million today is more value than $4 million two years from now. Economically, that's beyond argument. Of course it is, right? The Supreme Court in the Timbers case unanimously held against secured creditors, said they had no right to be paid for the privilege of delay, even though there's no question that that imposed uh, an economic uh, loss to them compared to the rights they would have had outside of bankruptcy. Perhaps of even more interest, Melissa, 
the constitutional question wasn't even broached. I mean, it was it, it was assumed to be so obviously not a constitutional problem that it didn't even come up in the opinion. The opinion is just sort of parsing the statute, you know, looking at this section versus that section and things like that. Um, and sort of simple as a matter of policy, should we do it? But no one said this is clearly some sort of a regulatory taking uh, or anything like that. And that's not my pushing the envelope argument. That's clearly accepted law. And frankly, there's no law going the other way. So to the extent that these statutes being considered now for Puerto Rico have adequate protection as part of the automatic stay design, just like the bankruptcy code, and then the external moratorium has an irreparable harm standard in it for lifting the stay, they seem to be immune from these constitutional challenges, is what you're saying, for creditors that have security interests? There is no constitutional issue whatsoever uh, with those provisions under existing law as it stands today. Those are perfectly fine. Indeed, you can go back, even aside from the bankruptcy clause, I mean, remember the, the 1934 uh, Blaisdell case, uh, Minnesota mortgage foreclosure moratorium law I, was upheld under on an emergency basis. That wasn't even invoking the bankruptcy clause. Uh, and so when you add the power of the bankruptcy clause to it, the suggestion that merely delaying relief would in some way constitute an unconstitutional taking has no legs to stand on whatsoever. The Supreme Court precedent is absolutely crystalline on this point. There's there's no there's no serious argument that can even be made the other way. So let's talk about discharge of debt, this permanent contract impairment that seems fairly core to the bankruptcy clause. There are questions of how broad the bankruptcy power is, but seems like the discharge is pretty squarely well in there. Um, so now we're not just talking about a delay. We are talking about the termination of legal liability for the debt, personal liability for the debt. So can you speak to that element and how that intersects with takings law? Certainly. Uh, here again, Melissa, the there's no constitutional problem whatsoever with discharge of debt uh, with regard to takings. It's, even if it's a secured creditor. Now, with a secured creditor, you would have the remaining question of rights to the value of the collateral, the in-rem interest, the argument would make. So the traditional, sort of the received wisdom would perhaps say, you might have some constitutional right with regard to your collateral, but not with regard to the discharge of your debt. Your debt, the, the in personam part of the uh, liability, absolutely can be discharged. And again, multiple times, with the Rock Island case being you know, one of the notable uh, examples of this, the court essentially said that the under the bankruptcy clause, there in looking at the historical development, uh, there are two core aspects. I mean, if we're going to have 
a bankruptcy law, that entails two things fundamentally. Sort of the distribution of property of the bankrupt, the debtor, and the discharge of debt. And at its core, any bankruptcy law can do that, and it can do that to anyone, secured or unsecured. Now, as I said, there's a remaining question, which would be getting to sort of the original thesis in my article on the the collateral entitlement. But as far as a discharge of the debt, where you say you're not allowed to pursue the debtor on an in personam basis after the bankruptcy discharge, again, under existing law, zero question that that is perfectly fine on a constitutional basis. So, of course, I recommend to listeners that they read this article. It has a lot of really helpful information about the strength or lack thereof of constitutional challenges. But before we go, is there anything else you want to make sure we know about from your research in this area? No, I, I really don't think so. I mean, because the what I've seen, at least, may I make one point, the... What I have seen with regard to the pending proposals, at least with regard to Puerto Rico reform, wouldn't raise, I don't believe, even under the traditional view with regard to the rights of secured creditors, any takings problems, because they incorporate uh, a number of protections uh, that the current bankruptcy law uh, provides in terms of the uh, the amounts being paid to secured creditors with regard to their collateral uh, and things like that. So, you know, best interest tests, cram down rights, so things like that, that, uh, I mean, obviously these would be very, you know, detailed aspects of the pending proposals can vary, but the, the sort of the pushing the envelope argument I was making that for secured claims with regard to their, you know, having a takings entitlement to have the value of their collateral protected, that that was simply not true and that they should be viewed the same as general contract creditors because there's really not, in my opinion, a constitutional difference uh, between the contract and secured creditors. And, And we could go into a much more detail on sort of how that breaks down. But I don't think that's even on the table with regard to anything that's been proposed in Puerto Rico uh, right now. I don't believe that there are any pending proposals that would seek to do to secured creditors what I'm suggesting might, contrary to the received wisdom, be in fact possible to be done. As far as I know, Melissa, everything that's being proposed to be done uh, with regard to uh, debt relief in Puerto Rico is squarely uh, supported by long-standing constitutional uh, precedent uh, under the Congressional Powers and the Bankruptcy Clause and really would not even be exceptional uh, in the slightest. I think that's a perfect place for us to end. So, uh, Charles Tabb, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my my pleasure, Melissa. Always uh, always great to have the opportunity to talk with you. And I, I know this is a major uh, a major issue 
uh, and I, I hope that some resolution can be uh, achieved. Well, you've been very helpful in, in explaining these issues, and uh, thanks to ABI podcast listeners. We will be talking with you again soon. 